All right, so before we get into our text, I want to talk about a fun subject. I want to talk about fear. Because it's something that we're probably afraid of talking about our fears, right? We don't like to think about the things that we're afraid of. But this morning, I want you to think about those things. I want you to think about what you're afraid of. What do you fear? Because for most of us, we don't realize how many decisions we make based on our fears. May not even be uh, realizing when we make these decisions and we, we do things, we're governed by our fears. We fear failure. We fear the unknown. We fear rejection. And probably the worst of all, what if they don't like me? You know, so we do these things based on uh, what may happen. We don't share Christ sometimes because we're afraid of being rejected. We don't walk in faith because we're afraid of the unknown. Sometimes we're afraid to tell people the truth because they might think differently of us. We are afraid to have uncomfortable conversations because this could end badly. Because we care more about whether people like us than whether we're being true to God's word. And so, so many of these things we don't realize we do according to fear. And so I want to talk about fear for just a moment before we get into our text, because this has a lot to do with understanding where we are in in the passage this morning. And as you can imagine, in the culture that we're in, we have a fear for everything, a phobia for everything. And if you don't think we're getting soft as a culture, I'm going to give you some examples. If you look up weird phobias, you can do this for hours like I did, but I'm just going to share a couple of what I found because in our culture, we are scared of everything. So I'm going to start with some of the easy ones and then we're going to move into the more ridiculous and then we'll, you'll, you'll kind of see what living by fear looks like. So the first one is called testophobia. Any guesses? Fear of taking tests. Probably pretty easy. Next one, verbophobia. Any, any guesses? Fear of words. Really? It only gets worse from here, I'm sorry. The next one, tourophobia, the fear of cheese. This is real. There are people who are afraid of certain types of cheeses, who are afraid of all cheeses. Some people can't even look at cheese. Tourophobia. Again, it gets worse from here, so don't, don't, don't get surprised there. Because if you're afraid of cheese, we just won't invite you over to dinner, I'm sorry. If that's where it falls apart for you, it's going to only get worse from there. All right, so the next one, omphalophobia. Omphalophobia. The fear of the navel. Yes. Fear of a belly button. No joke. Some people are afraid of their belly button, of looking at other people's belly. I, I don't understand it. Again, it only gets worse. This one is one for our culture. Nomophobia. Fear of losing cell phone coverage. It took thousands of occurrences and a group of scientists to come up with this term. A British scientist came up with this, not too surprising. People were having anxiety and freaking out because they had bad cell phone service. Really. Poor babies indeed. Uh, The next one, Venus trephobia. Can't make this up. Fear of beautiful women. Venus trephobia. The next one, pogonophobia. Fear of beards. This is a fear of beautiful men. So just just, just in case you didn't know. So... Funny, all those are true fears, and there are some more ridiculous ones. I was going to talk about the fear of the color yellow, no joke, but I couldn't pronounce it, so we're not, so we're not going to try to do that one. But the, the whole point is, is that so many people are afraid of ridiculous things. They are petrified, and their, their lives are uh, uprooted by silly things like this. And there are scientists who get paid to study silly fears like this. 
And in our culture, it seems like every week there's a new thing to be afraid of. And the uh, Greek word uh, phobos, which we're going to look at a, a little bit, uh, is where we get the word phobia. What are you scared of? And so in our culture, as we've just seen, fear has a very negative context. We only see fear as having a, a negative side to it. But as words evolve over time, we lose some of the range of meaning because this word fear is, was not always supposed to be negative. There's another side to fear. There's a positive side to fear. It's a reverence and an honor. And so when the Bible talks about fearing the Lord, it's in a positive sense. And the fear of man is in a negative sense. And I think it's important to look at that because when we look at fear in our culture, we've lost the richness of the word. It is one of the most prominent themes in all of scripture, fear. Fear of the Lord or something like that is mentioned around 200 times. The most common command in scripture, anyone know it, should know this, fear not, not, is mentioned about a hundred times, roughly. So fear of God is mentioned twice as many times as fear not. This is not by accident. And these things seem like they're two completely different things, but they're not really that different. Because if you look at what the Bible emphasizes, fearing the Lord, fearing God, revering God, Twice as many times as as fearing not, you can see that there is connection here. These things are not too far apart. Because if we fear the Lord, if we revere him, if we trust in the Lord, fearing man seems a little more and more silly. Fearing the things of this world seems silly when you have a reverential fear for God. And so I want to look at some of these verses. Again, there's probably 500 references, and we're not going to go through 500 of them. Um, and I don't want you to turn there because I want to move through these quickly. They will be up on the screen. I want to draw some things to your attention. What does the Bible say about fear? And this word that is so narrow in our culture has a broader meaning throughout Scripture. So the first one uh, that will be up there will be Psalm 27, 1 through 4. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I love that David, who was assailed throughout his entire life, he was in constant fear of his very life, but all he desired is to dwell with the Lord in his temple, with his people, singing his praises. This is what the fear of the Lord looks like. It outweighs the fear of man. Next one, Psalm 56. This is another one of going through uh, difficult times, and David knew more than what most of us know. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I love that line. What can flesh do to me? When you fear the Lord, what is another person? A creation of the creator. When you fear the creator, what can a creation do to you? Proverbs 29, 
25 and 26. This is very appropriate to our lives. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. You see the contrast there, fearing the Lord and fearing man. Because when you, when you fear man, you seek your, your justice from rulers. You seek to be vindicated through people. But if you put your trust in the Lord, there is where you will find justice. Ecclesiastes, this book of Solomon going back and forth over all the pleasures of life. What does Solomon come down to at the very end of the book? Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the, end of the matter. All has been heard. Solomon has laid out his entire case. And here's what he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Amen. And it is as true today as it was then. Solomon, all the riches in the world, all the power in the world, all the women in the world. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Isaiah 41.10. This is great encouragement. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is the God of the universe promising to uphold us in the midst of our fears. Whom then shall we fear? Matthew 10. This is Jesus now. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus is saying, don't worry about these temporary things because I'm trying to teach you about eternity. You can either trust in me where there is no fear forever. Or you can look to those who may just kill your body, but you will be afraid and in torment for the rest of your days. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Our God is sovereign. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God's not worried about when a sparrow falls to a ground. And he has made you in his image and you are of more value than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we fear people, when we let our lives be determined by what others can do to us, we are saying, Jesus, you are not enough. Jesus, you have not been enough for me. I need to seek comfort elsewhere. Jesus said, for those who do that, I will deny you before my Father. Those who fear men don't put their trust in the Lord. There are consequences. In Revelation, look at Revelation 14. When all is said and done, what does the angel say to John in this vision? And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Because when it all comes down to it on the day of judgment, fear God, worship him. Because that will go on forever. The fear of man is only temporary. So as we look at this uh, quick biblical survey of fear, what does faith teach us about fear? And what does faith do to fear? I love this quote from Arthur Pink. This will not be on the screen. But he says that faith is a spiritual grace which enables its possessor to look away from human terrors and to confide in the unseen God. 
Let me say that again. Faith is a spiritual grace which enables its possessor to look away from human terrors and to confide in the unseen God. Amen. Because faith is driven by a fear of the Lord and is opposed to the fear of man. Faith is driven by the fear of the Lord and is opposed to the fear of man. The world operates by fear. The world makes their decisions based on fear. What if this goes wrong? What if this happens? But if we fear the Lord and trust in him, we no longer need to be slaves to that fear that we were when we were in the flesh. And so now, let's see that in the context of our verse this morning. So we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. You are awesome. You are majestic. You are holy. You are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Lord, let us fear you. Let us revere everything that you revere. Let us hate what is detestable to you. Let us not fear man or the workings of man or the situate or the circumstances around us. But let us live in holy fear of you, in awe, in reverence of your majesty and your might. And Lord, I just pray that this, that this message this morning would encourage us, would challenge us, would teach us about your desire for us, that we would find our rest in you. And let's pray that your spirit would speak through me and convict and guide your people for the praise of your glory, for the glorious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so what are we talking about here? Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 2. Because last week we were talking about the end of the days of Joseph, and now we're in Exodus chapter 2. So what's happened? We finally transitioned out of Genesis. So we are in the last chapter of Genesis. Now we're in the second chapter of Exodus. So what's happened? So several hundred years have passed. Joseph was the number two man in power in Egypt, and he had all the favor in the land. And all of the people of Israel lived in ease and comfort. They had the best lands in Egypt, and Joseph was caring for them. But over time, a new pharaoh came. He forgot about Joseph. He forgot about the people. And he began to look around. He said, man, these Israelites are multiplying like rabbits. Like we either need to separate them or kill them. So, of course, the logical decision is he says, we're going to kill all of the baby boys born. I don't want anyone coming against my power. So the Pharaoh says, all newborn babies that are boys, kill them. And so he sends out these, these uh, Egyptian midwives, and they don't. They fear the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh. But the edict is still out. So here's where we find ourselves in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of brush, bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. 
She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the women took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. All right, so what can we learn here from this, this passage? Uh, one, we see the faith of Moses' mother. We see people who uh, recognize that something evil could happen to their son, and so they want to provide for him. But they do this curious thing, and they put him in a basket, and they send him down the river. We also see how the Lord provides. God's providence is amazing to me, because there are some, some things here that would come across as ironic to us. But in God's providence, he uses irony to work out his plans. One of the things that's, that's interesting is Pharaoh's greatest fear is that a young child would, would raise up and would come in, in threat of his throne. And this child is brought into his house by his own daughter. And if that wasn't enough, the child's mother, who is a faithful servant of God, this lowly peasant servant woman, is brought in to nurse and raise her own child. And if that wasn't enough, she gets paid to do it. Isn't that how the Lord works? I, I love to see how this, this, this plays out. And probably the most uh, just glaring irony of all of this is that Pharaoh is so governed by fear, and they are so governed by the courage of God, that the courage of this slave couple outweighs the fear of the king of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. Their fear of God is greater than his fear of man, and God uses his fear of man against him. And so from Joseph to Moses, we see this transition. In the time of Joseph, he was a ruler. He was not Pharaoh, but he had all the powers of a king. And he was to look forward to a king that was to come. Moses is from the line of Levi, the household of the priests. And he is to look forward to a priest that is to come. Next week, we're going to look at Moses in his prophetic role, looking forward to the prophet that is to come. All of these Old Testament images, these Old Testament types, are looking forward to the fulfillment himself. The perfect king, the perfect priest, and the perfect prophet in Jesus. And so Moses is a very important figure, one of the most important in the New Testament, one of the most important in the, New Testament, in the, in the Old and New Testament. And so important in the book of Hebrews, which we'll, do, uh, we'll look at more next week. But the whole Hebrew identity was connected to Moses. But Moses was not supposed to be the object. Moses is another type that is to point us to Christ. Look at some of these parallels. Moses is a baby who is saved from a ruthless king who would grow up to save his people. Can we think of another baby that was saved from a ruthless king that would grow up to save his people? Moses was born under this wicked king, Pharaoh, who was so vain and so fearful that he wanted all the baby boys of Israel killed to remain in power. Jesus was born under Herod, who was so vain and so fearful that he wanted all the baby boys of Israel killed so he could remain in power. Moses 
after receiving his call from God, goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, after receiving his call, goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Moses was to lead his people out of slavery, bring them through the wilderness, and deliver them to the promised land. As we looked at the parallels in the Exodus last week, Jesus is to bring his people out of spiritual slavery, lead them through the wilderness, and deliver them to the promised land. We're going to get into more of these parallels over the next couple of weeks. But looking back in our text in Hebrews, this is where we find ourselves. This is all the information we need to kind of unpack what's going on here. So Hebrews eleven twenty three says, by faith, Moses. Now, it's interesting. Because this verse is not about Moses. Moses is a baby. He doesn't do anything here. By faith, Moses, when he was born. Who gets credit for something they do when they were born? But if, if you read on, Moses is the focus here, but the faith is of his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. The faith of his parents is incredible. Now, only his mother is mentioned in Exodus. But the writer of Hebrews is specific to say that the faith was of his parents. Godly parents work together. Godly parents are in unison in their trust of the Lord. She was not doing this apart from her husband. This was an act of faith. Uh, And we don't have their names recorded in Exodus 2, but in Exodus 6, we know them as Amram and uh, Jacobed. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention their names because Moses is the focus. Moses is supposed to point us to Christ, but it was their, their faith that made it possible. And there are a lot of parallels with the parents of Jesus. Because God told the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, we are in that, that, that time of year, so we might as well mention it. We should. Joseph and Mary had to hide their baby as well. How did they hide their baby? They took him to Egypt. And so Matthew quotes a verse from Hosea 1, out of Egypt, I will, Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt, I will call my son. This is a verse that looks back to Moses, but looks forward to Christ. And Joseph and Mary, in faith, protected their child as did the parents of Moses. And they hid him for three months. Now, as the title of, of this sermon is called Fearless Faith. Faith is fearless, but it's not reckless. Being faithful is, is, is not going around waving this, this baby, Pharaoh, I defy you to kill my son. That would be foolish. Faith is fearless, but it is not foolish. They hid their son because everyone in Egypt wanted this boy dead. And with good reason, because the Lord was raising him up for a purpose. Can you imagine the mindset of a parent who has to hide their child for three months? I know some children you can't hide for three hours, let alone three months. And when she can no longer hide him, she puts him in this little boat and shoves him off down the river. That has to be faith. That's either faith or pure insanity. Because what, in your, what person in their right mind says, I can't protect this child anymore. Let me just shove him off down the river and hope that fate takes over. No, this is an act of faith. These are parents who looked at this child and said, you are made in the image of God. You are beautiful because God says you are. God, this is your child. I am trusting him to you. I don't know what's going to happen next, but I know that you are good. And I know that you have always provided for us and you will continue to provide. Because they had no earthly hope of seeing their baby again. But spiritually, they knew who was providing for him. And as parents, you can send your children off to school. 
send them off to college. You can, you can send them away and you can care for them for a season. But after a while, you have to trust that the same spirit that has worked within you will work within them. I think there is a parallel to discipleship in this as well. Because for those of us who invest in others, who, who care for people, there is a time where they are under our supervision. Where we, we, we pray with them, we apply scripture to their lives, and, and we care for them. But we won't always be there. So when we care for others, we trust in the God that is provided for us. We trust in the spirit that is taught us. We trust in the power of the word that we stand on. And we send them off, trusting in the God who will provide for his people. So by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. It's one of those lines, what does this have to do with anything? Why is the child being beautiful even mentioned here? And it's not something we normally ascribe to a boy. Uh, in Exodus 2, the language that's used is the child was fine. Uh, but it's, it, it goes deeper than that. The, the, the Hebrew word uh, tab, uh, uh, Hunter can tell me if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. Probably not. Uh, but it, it, means, it, it means good. It's the same word God used at the end of, of creation. It is good. It is perfect. It is beautiful. And so that was applied to Moses himself. Stephen tells us that Moses was beautiful in the sight of God in Acts 7. There's a couple things we can learn from that. One, we see every child as being made in the image of God. Not to mention that you know, babies have this little cuteness tractor beam that just pulls people in. But as believers, we see that this is someone who bears the image of our creator. And they have value. We're not like pagans. We're not like Herod and Pharaoh who could just kill babies uh, without any thought. We're not like abortion mills who don't see any value in lives. We see that God made babies and he made them beautiful. But there's also a real sense in which the Holy Spirit was working here. Because when his mother saw him, there was something that struck her. And when Pharaoh's daughter saw him, there was something that struck her. Because she saw the baby first and then she heard him crying. Most babies, we will hear them crying before we see them. But she was struck by the baby first and then she heard him. So something about his appearance was used for the affection of his mother and the affection of Pharaoh's daughter. Because they saw this child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is where we come to the meat of this message. That they were not afraid of the edict of the king. I mean, this, is, this has to be terrifying for a parent. I don't know how you couldn't be afraid. You're a slave. You're not in your own country. And outside, there are soldiers always looking and listening for babies. So they can kill them by order of the king. And this edict that had gone out. From this wicked ruler was unfazing to these faithful parents. Because they feared the Lord, they did not fear Pharaoh. And they had faith that when they sent, down, they sent Moses down the river, he would not encounter a soldier's sword. That is faith. That is what fearless faith looks like. Because faith in a faithful God does crazy things to you. It gives you peace that passes understanding. It makes no earthly sense. 
And fear of the Lord makes fear of man seem foolish. Because when you remember all of the things spoken about our God in Scripture, all the reasons why we should fear the Lord, and when we fear man, we fear the things of man, how foolish does that seem? Our God created me. He holds the universe together in his hand. He knows all things. He has written the beginning and the end. He is the beginning and the end. And yet I fear what's going on over here, with this brief moment in my life. There's just a, a couple things we can think about when we see their bravery, their fearlessness in the, in the midst of a terror that you cannot get through without faith. This is a perfect tension that we feel uh, when we are given commands by our rulers. The Bible tells us to honor, to revere those in authority over us, and we should, up until the point until they, they tell us something that is against God's commands. The Israelites were, were faithful. They didn't uprise. Even when Moses comes back, they didn't, want to, they didn't want to raise up arms against Pharaoh. They didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted to be good and obedient. But there is a recognition that when you tell me to do something that is against God's law, I am not offering up my son for sacrifice. The apostles face this very often in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, when the high priest tells them, you can say whatever you want, but do not preach in the name of Jesus. How do they respond in Acts 5, 29? We must obey God rather than man. This boldness brought all of the apostles except for John to their death for preaching in the name of Jesus. But they feared God more than they feared man. And this is also a great encouragement to us for God's plan for his people, for God's elect. They are in his hand and no plans of man can change what God has planned for us. Job, at the end of his whole process, where Job is just beat up, his family is taken from him, his his body is deteriorated, all of his earthly belongings are taken from him. How does Job end in... um, Job 42.2. It'll be up on the screen. It should be. Job 42.2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is how we approach the situations of our lives in the providence of God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Has there ever been a time in your life where it seemed that there was no way out. Has there ever been a time in your life where, man, one second earlier and that car would have hit me? One more stupid decision, I would have ended up in dead or in jail. There are a lot of those instances in my life. One more second, one more situation, and I deserve what was coming to me, or I didn't deserve it, but there was no other reason except for the miraculous that I'm still standing here today. God provides for his people. God cares for those who are his in ways that make no earthly sense. One of my favorite quotes of all time, George Whitfield, the great evangelist preacher, asked if, it, because uh, he faced crowds that were not always favorable to him. They, they loved to throw fruit and bottles and other things at him. Uh, and they asked, do you fear those who come against you? George Whitfield said, I am invincible until God is finished with me. Beloved, you are invincible until God is finished with you. 
There is nothing that man can do that can stop the purposes of God. And Moses is an example of that in our lives. And this is a guiding principle for all trials in our lives. This is the purpose of the entire book of Hebrews. That we find our assurance and our confidence in Christ. That no matter what the rest of the world does, no matter the depression, the the, the disappointment, the apostasy, the persecution, all of those things that come about in life, Christ has overcome them for us. Christ is better than all of those circumstances. We are to find our hope and our trust and our faith in him. We are to fix our eyes on him. Nothing that the world can do will ever change what God has in store for you if you are his. It's like Moses was his. If you've put your faith and trust in Christ, nothing can pull you out of his hands. And this is why the cross is so important to us. Because what Jesus accomplished on that cross, what you believe about that determines everything else in your life. Because if Jesus died to death and to fear and to sin and shame forever, what shall we fear? The cross changes everything. Because while it's great to welcome in the baby boy, the incarnate God in flesh, never forget that that boy grew up. That boy lived perfectly and walked perfectly and died so that we could rise again with him. And one of my favorite passages it explains is turned to uh, Romans chapter 8. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, uh, we're going to start in verse 31. The word fear is not mentioned here. But this tells us how we should approach fear as believers. And if I don't read this and your body temperature doesn't turn up and you don't want to shout amen, you might be dead inside. Look at Romans chapter 8. Because he, he does not use the word fear. But Paul speaks to fear here. Look at this. Romans chapter 8 starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is fearless faith right there. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? As a follower of Jesus Christ, that should make you stand up straight. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. We won't get into the purpose of of, of that passage, but um, that's looking back to Psalm 44 and the persecution of God's people. But let's continue on, verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The conquering is not in us, it is in the one who loved us. For I am sure... 
that neither death nor life nor angels angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Nothing. Not Pharaoh. Not armies, not principalities, not Satan and every evil demon that has ever walked on this earth can separate us from the love of Christ. The faith of Moses' parents is to stand as an example to us. The same God who provided for that little baby. The same God who provided for another baby who was sent to earth to die for our sins. My hope for everyone in this room, believer and non-believer alike, is that you turn from the fear of the world. That you stop living according to fear. That you stop being burdened by sin and guilt and shame and turn to the one who can give you life. Because for the believer, many of us live in guilt and shame. Many of us live in fear. Fear of what will happen to this. Fear of what's going to happen next. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. For the non-believer, what hope do you have? If it's not Christ, then what? Maybe, somehow, I'm good enough? Trust in Jesus and be saved. Don't fear the silly things of this world. Don't fear your navel in the color yellow. Yes, those are ridiculous. But... Compared to the fear of the Lord, fearing anything else is as ridiculous as fearing the color yellow. I want to conclude with a story. Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs is a fantastic missionary organization that goes out to countries all around the world where believers are being persecuted and losing their lives for the very name of Jesus. I want to tell you a story about this girl. She's in the country of Laos. Her name, cannot pronounce it, S-O-N-X-I. No idea. Songsi. I'm just going to read excerpts from this this story. Because this is a great picture of the contrast between fearing man and fearing the Lord. Songsi's parents hated her new Christian faith. But she knew that they were just afraid because of the trouble it could bring her family. When she tried to tell them about Christ, they would say, we can't believe in this religion because we are afraid of the police. If it weren't for the police, we would believe in Jesus. Sure. Because Jesus is the problem. Eight Christian families lived in Songzi's small village in communist Laos. But she had never paid much attention to them and certainly never imagined she would become one of them. All she really noticed was that they were different from the other villagers. They didn't gossip, they were humble, and they encouraged her when she talked to them. She had no interest in Jesus until one day when she discovered a small booklet lying on the ground as she was walking through the jungle. After picking it up and beginning to read the worn pages, she was immediately drawn to its message. One day Jesus will come back, it said. Those words filled her young heart with hope that she had never had before. As soon as Songzi returned to her village, she visited the Christian leader. 
After uh, he told her more about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, she prayed with him and placed her faith in Christ. Sungsi knew that her newfound faith would upset her parents, that's to say the least. So she decided not to tell them. She also knew that if her parents caught her with a Bible, they would burn it. After she had been a Christian for a while, however, some friends encouraged her to be bolder in her faith. If you believe God is real, he will help you. One of them assured her. She began attending uh, the house church in her village. But neighbors soon noticed and told her parents. Furious about the secret conversion, her parents tried excuse me, to prevent her from going to church. The more Song Si attended church, the angrier her parents grew. They started beating her and tried to shame her by saying things like, you're a very bad girl because you don't listen to your parents. It's another example of you should obey your parents. So they tell you to do things that are against what God commands. This is where it does not get easier for her. They sometimes locked her in a room so she couldn't attend church and refused to give her food. One day, her older brother even threatened to kill her with his hunting rifle. But Song Si remained faithful to Christ. She kept going to church and continued to show her family the love of Jesus. When her parents finally threatened to send her to the, the, the city of Vietan to be a prostitute, she knew that it was time to leave. Trusting in Christ, she fled to a Christian friend who in turn helped her connect with some Viet, um, Voice of the Martyr workers. All these, although Sun Tzu's parents disowned her as their daughter, the workers made sure all her needs were met. They helped her enroll in a sewing school and later complete a course in a Bible school. Song Si recently led a younger sibling to Christ, which upset her parents. Her request, just pray for my family, that they would one day know Jesus, she said. And pray for me and my future. I want to serve God. Man. What do you fear? What so cripples you that you can do you do everything you can not to face it? Because you, what you fear, you will seek to please in your life. What you fear will begin to rule over you. If you fear the Lord, and He rules over you. You have nothing else to fear. But if you, have, if you don't fear the Lord and you fear everything else, you now have him to fear in a very negative sense. Just pray this morning that you would have the peace that Moses' parents had that passes all understanding, that you could rest in the Lord, that the sovereign God of the universe knows the hairs in your head and has made you in his image, who has made you more valuable than all of the sparrows of the sky. And he sent his son. We celebrate during this season, but we rejoice all year long that he came for the salvation of those who put their trust and faith in him. And only out of that his fearless faith manifests itself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your provision. 
thank you that you provide for us and you care for us and we did not deserve it. The little things in our lives that we are so crippled and burdened by, Lord, you know. You know all of our tears. You have them in a bottle. You know what ails us. You know what hurts us. You know what we're scared of. Lord, give us the strength to trust in you. Spirit, work in us. Convict us. Teach us. Guide us to fear you. To fear our God, not fear man, not fear our circumstances. Because in Christ, what can they do to us? If he is for us, who could be against us? Our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. Not just a baby in a manger. But the creator of all things, sitting on the throne of power. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.